Already open your Bible to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, we're going to be there um, all morning. So Psalm chapter 22. Um, let me introduce a couple of things. First of all, uh, this psalm was written by King David. King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Okay, so this, uh, this psalm was written about a thousand years before Jesus was on the cross or was even born or any of that stuff. Okay, um, so understand that this is a messianic. Um, this is a messianic psalm. It's also a uh, obviously a prophecy pointing to Christ. All right, uh, what this does, what this passage does. First of all, um, I believe that it is uh, it is so often overlooked as we prepare for Easter and we read the the gospels of Jesus being crucified and him uh, rising again. It, it absolutely is important to focus on those passages. But as we do that, uh, we often overlook Psalm chapter 22, okay? Uh, and what we're going to see today is we're going to see uh, both the cross and the resurrection, but not from the perspective of someone who is there watching, uh, as we see in, in the, the gospel accounts, but we're going to see the, both the cross and the resurrection from the perspective of Jesus himself. Okay, that's, that's what this is doing, all right? And so it's, it's remarkable. If you've never read this psalm, um, I would encourage you to read it uh, pretty regularly, definitely at least once a year, uh, every time we get, to re we get ready to celebrate the resurrection. Okay, we're going to see um, the cross and the resurrection in detail. Um, also, you need to note that there's a shift. Uh, there's a shift at the end of verse 21. And up to verse 21, we're seeing the cross and the suffering that Jesus is enduring and also how he gets through that suffering, which is absolutely insightful and practical and useful for each and every person in this room. At the end of verse 21, uh, we shift. We move away from the cross and suffering and we see Jesus' response to the resurrection, which um, is mind-blowing, okay? Uh, so uh, that's... What in the world is this thing? Um, sorry, there's, I don't know what that was. Um, okay, um, so uh, let's, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, and, and thank you for the opportunity to worship you, God. We, we thank you that we get to praise you uh, as, as your church, a, a church that you have called together. God, we uh, God, we, we've come to worship you because you're absolutely worthy of all worship and of all honor and all glory. You are the holy God of this universe, and, and God, in you is our salvation. God, it is mind-blowing when we, when we realize how holy and perfect you are, and then how sinful we are. God, it, it, is, it is such an incredible opportunity for a sinner to stand before the holy God of the universe which shows us that your love and your grace and your mercy are just as incredible. Father, we pray that you would work in this room. We pray that as we study your, uh, your word, that we wouldn't just learn uh, in a, uh, as a form of knowledge or head knowledge, but that, God, that you would grow our faith and that we would, we would love you and love Jesus more as a result of studying this psalm. Father, we, we lift up the team downstairs as they're ministering to the kids, and we pray for the children that are down there learning and growing. Lord, we thank you for the team that is so willing to serve them and, and uh, share the gospel with them. We pray that you would work downstairs as well. 
And Father, we also pray for the other churches in town that are worshiping and, and praising you as well. God, we pray for, for Harvest and we pray for New Hope Nazarene and, and, uh, and the Lutheran church up the street. And God, we pray for First Baptist Church and every other church uh, in this city, Lord. We pray that they would remain true to the gospel, that they would worship you um, with authenticity and honesty and humility. We pray that they would share the gospel and celebrate the fact that the grave is empty and Jesus lives. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, right off the bat, the, again, the first 21 verses are focusing on the suffering, uh, the sufferings of Christ, okay? And so uh, there's, there's something to know also about the structure of the first 21 verses, okay? There are three blocks of verses that deal, that each deal in a different way with Christ's suffering, okay? Uh, so let's talk about Christ's suffering, and then uh, each of them is followed by a block of text that shows us, again, this is a very unique perspective, that shows us the unwavering faith of Jesus in the midst of his intense suffering, okay? And so that's what we're going to see uh, they alternate back and forth all the way through the 21 verses. Uh, each of the blocks of text that begin with Christ's confidence and faith, uh, they begin with the line in verse 3, it'll say, yet you are holy. In verse 9, it, again, it says, uh, yet you are he. But then in verse 19, it says, but you, O Lord. So all of those, the preceding uh, chunks of text are talking about Christ's suffering and then he shifts and he says, but you are holy, or yet you are he, or, or but you, O Lord. In other words, uh, now I'm going to pivot here, and, I'm, and it's going to start talking about Jesus' incredible faith in the midst of this intense suffering, okay? Uh, so let's jump into it. The first thing we're going to see is a cry of faith in the midst of of horror. This is in verse uh, verses one and two, and this is this is what Jesus yells while he's hanging on the cross. Okay, Jesus is on the cross, and he says uh, these words, and it points us to Psalm twenty-two. So, uh, verse one it says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest." No one has ever endured what Jesus lived in this moment. No one has ever endured this. Now, I'm not talking the physical pain, okay? The, the, what I'm talking about is the full fury of God's wrath. At no point in history has anyone ever endured God's wrath in this way. Remember, this is Jesus on the cross dealing with all of the sins of mankind, dealing with the wrath of God that you and I deserve, right? Jesus was not simply, he's not just physically tortured, although he absolutely was tortured. That wasn't all that he endured. He was abandoned by the Father to condemnation. He was given up to condemnation and wrath. He's given up to judgment, right? These are things that you and I have not endured and will not endure, assuming you put your faith in Christ. This is Jesus bearing the condemnation that you and I deserve, it's, it's what I owe and what you owe, paid for in the wounds of our Savior. This is, this is what our sin cost. And, and the cross is an incredible image. When we, when we picture Jesus Christ 
on the cross, and we see just his, his body that's not even recognizable as a man, beaten and bloody. Uh, just he, he is, He's tortured on the cross. That's a physical image of what our sin costs. But what we can't see is what Jesus endured spiritually. And to be honest, that, that, that's, the, that's the more extreme suffering. Because the, the spiritual suffering that Jesus endured was separation from God and, and facing God's wrath and God's condemnation on our behalf. This forces the question. As, as we read the Scriptures, we should always ask these questions. And this forces the question. In light of this, and knowing uh, or seeing the picture of Jesus on the cross and His body destroyed and he's bleeding and knowing what he endured spiritually speaking we have to ask the question how can anyone toy with sin knowing what jesus endured you know, when, when that's put in front of us how can anyone toy with sin because it, this is what sin costs is the giving over of jesus christ to the fury and wrath of god that's what jesus endured Jesus endured God's wrath and God's fury. We see, again, the, the, Jesus' body on the cross. We hear his cry to God the Father. And, and, and essentially, you have this perfect remedy to a casual view of sin. So often, Christians and non-Christians alike, they'll, they'll kind of come to the church or come to Christ for the benefits of Christianity. In other words, they're afraid of hell or they want these certain blessings from God but they'll still toy with sin. They'll still live a sinful lifestyle. And when we read, when we read these passages and we, we have this image of Jesus' beaten body on the cross and we, we read his words, why have you forsaken me? He's saying that to the Father. We, what we know is that Jesus was separated for the first time in all eternity from God the Father. He endured God's wrath. And yet you and I flirt with sin as though it's no big deal. You and I give lip service to the gospel. We joke about sins. We indulge as we, as whatever is enjoyable for us. Completely ignoring what our Savior went through, sometimes intentionally. question that is recorded in verse 1. Jesus yells, why? Why am, I, why am I forsaken? Why have you forsaken me? It's important to notice here that as we read these words, this question of Jesus is, it's not a cry of unbelief. It's not an ungodly cry. Notice that though he, he's, he's crying out in anguish, he's saying, why have you forsaken me? He precedes it with, my God, my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a cry of faithlessness. This is a cry of faithfulness. Right? This is a cry of faith in the midst of suffering. And it may be important for some of us today to understand that when Jesus asks this question, when he, when he asks why, 
Essentially what he's doing is he's sanctifying that same question. He's sanctifying the question of why. This why question for all of us who, who might find ourselves in the midst of tragedy or suffering or our, in our own difficulties of life. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were studying the wise man and the foolish man and how they built their house, the storms hit both houses, didn't they? In other words, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike are going to endure pain and suffering and tragedy and hardships. And what Jesus is doing here is he's sanctifying this question when we're in the midst of suffering and when we're in the midst of grief or whatever it might be, that we ask, why? I I don't understand. I don't know. What Jesus is showing us here is that it's, it's okay it's okay to ask that question. It's okay to, to say, God, I, I don't understand. Why, why, have, why have you given this to me? God, I am in so much pain, I don't think I can bear it. And I don't know why. We have to notice at this point, remember, remember God is, is pouring his wrath upon, or God the Father is pouring his wrath upon God the Son. And so God may have forsaken his son to the hell of the cross in this moment uh, on, for our benefit. But God the son has not forsaken the father in the hell of the cross. In other words, God, God had to forsake the son. He had to forsake Jesus on the cross. But Jesus did not forsake God the father as he endured the cross. He clings to a God who in these moments... Right now, as he's on the cross, he's separated from him. He can't see him, he can't feel him, and he he, he can't find him. And this is the real torture of the cross. This is the real torture of Calvary, that God the Son was separated from God the Father. And Jesus cries that he can't bear it. But he never has not forsaken God the Father in the midst of it. As he, as he does so, as he endures this and he looks to God the Father, he is an example for us when we find ourselves looking and crying to a God who does not seem near. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our suffering, whatever it is, so often all we can see is the pain around us and it consumes us. We're in a difficult, horrible marriage, and that's all we can see are are these problems in front of us or or health problems of of ourselves or someone that we love, and that's all we can see. And and we're looking for God, but we can't find Him. We say, how could God possibly be in this? I can't find Him. I don't see Him. I don't see Him working in this. It's terrible, and it's awful, and it's painful, and I can't go on. What we see is, is we see Jesus in that same situation. In fact, Jesus is in a situation far greater, far worse than what we will ever endure. And he's looking to God the Father. Jesus gives us an example of a faith that is absolutely incredible. Jesus endured this pain and this suffering, this separation, this this feeling of, of how he can't find God the Father. And he knows, he has the perspective, he knows what it's like to be one with the Father and in perfect fellowship with him. And on the cross, as he's dealing with this physical pain, this horrible, awful torture, 
that the Romans are, are throwing at him. What he's really crying out about is, is this spiritual anguish that he's enduring. The spiritual anguish that you and I deserve. That's what he's doing in verses 1 and 2. Next thing, he's going to shift, remember? So we have suffering, he's talking about suffering, and then he shifts over to faithfulness. He's remembering God's past faithfulness is what, what he's going to do. And so uh, notice how he sustains this extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary faith in the midst of these trials. And so the first thing he's going to do is he recites the faithfulness of God to the fathers, okay? And we see this in verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so as Jesus is enduring this, this spiritual torture and this separation, and he's, he's dealing with the wrath of God, what he's doing to sustain himself, what he's doing uh, to keep the, the, his faith is that he's, he's citing God's past grace on his people in order to sustain his faith in the midst of present trials. And so as he's enduring it, he's looking to the past and he's saying, God was faithful then. And he'll be faithful to me now. God, God was faithful then. He, he did not leave his people. In fact, he doesn't leave his people. He sustains faith in his suffering by remembering the unfailing faithfulness of God in the past. When your own trials begin to consume you, remember the grace of God. He has been faithful to you again and again, he has been faithful to your fathers and your forefathers, your ancestors. And he's been faithful to his people throughout the generations. When, when you're struggling and you're in the midst of your trials and you can't see anything but the pain, you can look to the past and see how faithful God has been to his people. And this is Christ's method of dealing with suffering. This is how Christ endured Calvary, by remembering this sustaining his faith in, in the midst of it all. This is how he did it. This is how he sustained his faith. He remembered and preached to himself the past unfailing faithfulness of God. It's incredible. If, if I were you, I'd write it down, to be honest with you, because this is a tool for us to use as we struggle and as we endure the difficulties of life. We can always know that Jesus endured the cross. He remained faithful in the cross by remembering how faithful God was in history. And we're going to see a couple other ways as well. The next thing uh, we're going to see in verses 6 to 8 is a Savior who's familiar with suffering. Verses 6 to 8, the psalm shifts back to focus on the sufferings of cross. So, uh, so we saw uh, verses 1 and 2 dealt with suffering. And then in 3 to 5, we see uh, Jesus give us a tool on how to deal with suffering. And then in verses 6 to 8, he's going to go back to the suffering. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A worm and not a man. 
This is how Jesus is, is describing the situation. They view me as a worm, not a man. Despised by the people. He's treated like a worm. Subhuman. Beneath compassion. Beneath mercy. Worthy of ridicule. No one else may understand your sadness or your grief. But I can promise you this. You, you may have highs and you may have lows and you may have really low lows, but you have never descended as low as Christ is here. There is, there is, no, uh, there is no point, there are no depths which you can sink where Christ has not already been. That's what we see here. He's, he's endured every level of human loss and pain and brokenness so that as you endure yours, he can look at you and he can say, I understand. I know I've been there. And Psalm 22 is giving us ways to deal with this pain and this torture. Jesus can look at you and says, I know, I, I understand. I know what it's like. You look at the cross. Look at the cross. He was alone. He was despised. He was mocked. The Pharisees, Pharisees standing around the foot of the cross. You remember what they said? What they said is Jesus was dying after they plotted, they, they falsely accused him and set him up and had him murdered. Do you remember what they said to him? He, he saved others. Let him save himself. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, stood at the foot of the cross and mocked Jesus. They said this to him. Jesus describes himself as a worm and not a man. He knows. He knows. You may not feel like you can go to anyone. Maybe you don't know where to turn. Maybe you think nobody gets it, nobody understands, nobody could understand. But none of that is true. In fact, that's a lie. There is someone you can turn to. You can turn to Christ. You can bring your grief and your cries and your pain and your burdens. You can take it all to him because he knows He's been there. He's been there. He's endured it. The next thing that Jesus is going to do, so Jesus is um, he's describing um, how he feels. Remember the suffering? Now he's going to shift back in verse 9, and we're going to see Jesus' faith come through in the midst of suffering. So um, again, we're going to see this, this trust and dependence on God, and it's, it's uh, supported not by a remembrance of God's past faithfulness, to the fathers, but by essentially a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness in Christ's own life. And so in verses 9 to 11, it says this, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. This is Jesus remembering himself as a faithful child. He can trace 
uh, the ways from his, uh, from his earliest memories that God has been his God, that God has been faithful to him personally. From Jesus' uh, own life, from his own perspective, from, from the time that he could first remember things as a little boy, he was a faithful child. And that's what Jesus is remembering. So first, he remembered God, God's faithfulness to his ancestors and his people. And here, Jesus is, is uh, bolstering his faith by remembering how God has been faithful to him personally, right? And, and to be honest, look at this testimony of Jesus, right? You took me from the womb, right? From the womb. Uh, you, made me tr- uh, you made me trust you at my brother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. In other words, since, since I was born... I was, I, was, I was faithful. Since I was born, I was yours, and you have been faithful to me, is what he's saying. And here's the thing. That's Jesus' testimony. And some of us, some of us have, some, have a testimony that's similar. Some of us say, I never remember a day when I was away from the Lord. Yeah, by the way, this is me. My, my mom led me to Christ. It's one of my very earliest memories Right? This is something that was very important to my parents. So as soon as, as, soon as we were old enough to interact and, and talk and have this discussion with, my parents were on that. Okay? And so uh, for me, I, I mean, I don't know what I was, four years old, five years old, somewhere in that range were my very earliest memories. I, I remember specifically, my mom talking to me about it, and I remember specifically uh, how, how we lived, that my parents cared about instilling a faith in me. And so I don't, I don't have a time where I was away from the Lord in this way. I don't, I don't have a, a moment in my life where, where I didn't believe. And some of us have this, this same testimony. We say, I don't remember living, you know, wild in rebellion. I, I grew up believing and trusting Him, fleeing sin and clinging to Christ. Some people just were born faithful. And that's good. And it's so often we consider it to be a boring testimony, but it's beautiful. Because it's Jesus' testimony. It's Jesus's. From his mother's womb, he says, I trusted in you. I never knew a time when I didn't trust you. It's the way that it's meant to be. And here's Jesus using it to sustain his faith in the midst of his most severe suffering. And if you're a parent, I hope you heard that. If you're a parent and you're, you're raising kids, if you're a parent, you have kids downstairs, right? Here's Jesus using his testimony of always being faithful to help him endure the most severe suffering that has ever been endured. And so parents, if you have children, th- this is pointing you to instill the faith of Christ in your children because it will help sustain them in difficult times. Lead them to the faith. Teach them the faith. Teach them the incredible love and grace of God the Father. Now, you can't save them, but you can teach them. You can help them along the way. In fact, that's your calling as a parent. That's, your, that's, your, that's why you've been given that responsibility. We read these things. God, God leads us from the very beginning. Maybe we need to reread our testimonies, our life stories with God as the central character instead of us. When you do that, you'll find plenty of fuel for for the engine of faith, even in the very worst of times. 
You reread your life story with God as the central character, not yourself. And you'll see a God that is faithful and loving. That's what you'll see. Jesus shifts in verse 12. We go back to suffering as he's, as he's on the cross. We see the lingering death of the cross. Verses 12 to 18. With the memory of God's faithfulness, Jesus faces the next wave of suffering. And the, de- and the details in this are incredible. And I'm, I'm going to read verses 12 to 18 here. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This, to be honest, this is a, let me give you a reason to trust the Bible. Um, first of all, it's inspired, and it's the inerrant word of God. In other words, there are no errors in it. Um, as we read this passage, verses 12 to 18, uh, it describes almost perfectly what Jesus endured. But it was written a thousand years before Jesus endured it. It's incredible. It, it really is. A thousand years before Christ came, we have an accurate account of what took place at Calvary. Right? We, we see, we see, you know, they open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And uh, they divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. And uh, he is uh, poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. His heart is melted like wax. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. God has brought him to the brink of death. He's dying. That's what's happening. Our Lord is dying. It's an incredible description of the cross. It's, a, it's an incredible description of the cross given by someone who endured it. And so what we're going to see now in verse 21, we're going to see a plea for, for future grace. Notice how, how the, the pain and suffering break, uh, break on, on faith at this time, and it doesn't look back to past faithfulness. This time it cries out to God in prayer. So uh, as Jesus is bolstering his faith, first he looks at how faithful God was to his fathers and his ancestors and his, and, and his people, and then he sees how faithful God was to him personally as a child and looking back through his life, and now he's going to bolster his faith by essentially looking for future grace because he's going to say, if God was faithful and gracious then, surely he will be faithful and gracious in the future, okay? And so he says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
Here's what we see. It is possible to humbly submit to the sovereignty of God while also asking at the same time to be delivered from the trials that he has ordained. Does that make sense to you? It is possible to humbly submit to God's sovereignty. In other words, humbly submit to to horrible things that happen that have been ordained by God even, but also at the same time ask God to deliver you from them. If you don't believe that, then I would recommend you reread this psalm, but I would also point you to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not not what I will, but your will be done. Crying for deliverance and submitting to what God has ordained is what Jesus did. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. A faith that sustains us in our trials is also a faith that doesn't hold back from asking to be delivered from those same trials. Just because you're submitting to God's plan for your life or submitting to God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you're forbidden from asking why or please deliver me. I want you to notice, though, in verse 21, this is where the entire psalm shifts. And and to be honest, I I would argue that that, um, our version, the ESV, is is not the best. Um, Verse 21, uh, where it says this, it says, Save me from the mouth of the lion, right? And then it says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's not the best way to translate this, okay? And so uh, I I did a little research. I was really confused because I'm not a Hebrew expert. I talked to John Schreier. He is a Hebrew expert, and he he told me that that we're on the right track. So um, what essentially is happening here, he's saying, save me from the mouth of the lion. This is how it should read. Save me from the mouth of the lion and the horns of the wild oxen. And then it just interrupts the psalm. It interrupts this prayer with, instead of you have rescued me, it says, you have answered me. And so what's happening here is as Jesus is praying, God gives him an answer to his prayer in the middle of his prayer. Does that make sense to you? So what's happening is Jesus is praying, save me from the mouth of the lions and the horns of the wild oxen. And then it's a pause. You have answered me. Jesus gets his answer and now the entire psalm shifts. The entire psalm shifts. He's no longer talking about suffering. Now we're going to rejoicing and responding to the resurrection. God answered his prayer before it was even said is what we have. And it's beautiful and it's incredible and it shows that God is faithful. Here it goes to the victory of the resurrection. From this point on, the psalm, the whole psalm, the tone of the psalm, everything about it is completely different. There's no more suffering. Jesus is off the cross. He has given up his spirit. Here in this this one clause of verse 21 is essentially death submitting to the resurrection. Death submitting to the Lord of the universe. In the second half of verse 21, the stone is rolled away. And Jesus is alive. So here in verses 22 to 29, we see a risen Christ. What's especially wonderful about Psalm 22 is that it tells us not just what it was like for Jesus on the cross, but also how he responds to the resurrection. I get that the cross is gory and we want to know as many details as possible about what happened to him. But Jesus is, from Jesus' perspective, the resurrection is incredible. 
right? It's, it's mind-blowing to, to have just been Peter or Mary Magdalene and, or, or one of those that were there to see the resurrection firsthand. But here we have the perspective of Jesus on that morning. It's incredible. It tells us how he responds even before it tells us how we ought to respond. Verse 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. Jesus responds to being delivered by God from, from death as worship and praise in the midst of the great congregation. That's what it says. That's, that's how he's responding. The Septuagint, which is it's, uh, the Old Testament, it's an ancient document, it's an Old Testament uh, translated from Hebrew into Greek, Okay. Um, it reads it, it says, in the midst of the great church, in the midst of the people of God, is how it says it. Essentially, he's saying, I'll be their song leader. As the song leader of the church, you know, Jesus invites us to join him. Jesus' response is, I, I will be the song leader as we worship you because of what you have done. It's incredible. Verse Twenty-three continues, you who fear the Lord. Jesus invites us now to join. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. And here's why we should worship in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The reason for our worship is that Jesus is risen Jesus is risen. He is alive. The Father, God the Father delivered him. We're summoned to worship because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied and Jesus lives. Jesus lives. Hope remains and there's still grounds for praise. This is incredible. Jesus has risen He's, he's defeated death. He, he's, he's destroyed it. And all who believe, all who believe that through tears and through mourning, they all can say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we can say that because Jesus lives. He's endured the worst suffering that there possibly could ever be. And he lives. And one day soon, death that has already been defeated will completely be undone when the Savior returns to take us home. And so the great congregation will gather in the wake of these events. The poor and the afflicted will be there, according to verse 26. The rich uh, will be there, according to verse 29. And in verse 27, it extends even further. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is the rich and the poor the Jew and the Gentile, man and woman, black and white. This is everyone, Republican and Democrat even. Maybe. I don't know. All people from every class and every background are brought to this congregation through faith in Jesus to praise him because the tomb is empty and Jesus lives. This is mind-blowing. This is incredible. And this is all from Jesus' perspective. He's going to finish up in verses 30 and 31. Essentially saying, he has done it. He has done it. It's finished. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He has done it. In other words, what's going to happen is a movement. A movement will be launched from the empty tomb that will span the entire globe and essentially thrive until every tribe and language and nation will assemble around the throne to say, worthy is the lamb who is slain. And what is it exactly that will draw them into worship, that will make them essentially forsake their idols and, and bend a knee to the, to the risen Christ? What, what is the content of the message that, that brings in the nations and causes them, uh, causes them to, to grow and to triumph? He gives us that answer as well. And it's in verse 31 where it says, He has done it. As Jesus worded it on the cross, it is finished. Jesus did it for us. There's nothing else to be done. You don't need to work to earn salvation. You don't need to work to make God happy with you or less angry with you. Jesus did it. Jesus endured God's wrath. Jesus endured being forsaken by him. Jesus endured the physical punishment. His blood was spilled. He did it. It is finished. The work is done. Our debt is paid for. There's nothing else to do but to repent Repent in faith and rise in praise to adore Him, to love Him, to worship Him. And that's not a chore. That's a, that's a beautiful opportunity. We don't have to earn salvation. We just have to, we have to join the congregation in singing, even if you don't like the music. Because Jesus died. And there's grace and mercy and cleansing for you because Jesus died. And because Jesus lives, not even death can destroy our hope or quiet our praise. And look, if, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, then I think you're, I think you're a rock. I, I do. If, if you can think about, about Jesus rising and we can praise, we don't have to face this kind of torture. And you're sitting here stone-faced. It, it doesn't bring you anything, then... I don't know, maybe, maybe you are a rock. I'm not sure. Psalm 22 focuses us entirely, not on our earthly blessings or on, even on our, on our deepest losses or pain or suffering. Psalm 22 points us to Jesus who died and rose and reigns. That's what it points us to. It's not about me. It's not about my suffering. It's not about what blessings I can get from him. It's about Jesus who died and rose and reigns. That is the message. That's the message of, verse, of chapter 22. It's the message of the entire scripture. We say this all the time. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus. He died. Our tears find perfect understanding in him. And because he lives, our joy has its roots in him. There's forgiveness of sin for you in Christ because he lives. There's comfort for sorrow for you uh, in him because he lives. And there's hope for tomorrow in him 
because the tomb is empty and he lives. This is true. He has done it, as Psalm 22 says. But as the New Testament says, it is finished. It's beautiful and it's incredible. And it's worth praising the Lord for. Let's do that. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. And God, we, God, we praise you for the fact that, that you died for us. We praise you because, God, because you're unbelievable. What you have done for us is, is remarkable. God, you are holy and you are perfect and you are wonderful. And we're far from it. We are sinners and, and we, we have indulged in horrible things. We have rebelled against you. We have sought to steal your glory. We have re- we've tried to, to even take your throne and, and put ourselves in it, declaring ourselves to be God. And yet, you still sent Christ to die for us. He still endured the cross. He still endured your wrath. He still endured the most horrible suffering any man could ever endure for us, even though we didn't deserve it. So God, you deserve all praise. You deserve all honor. God, we lift up our voices to you. We worship you because you are the God of heaven and you deserve every bit of worship that we could ever give. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.